0: Welcome to the EO Podcast,
1: where we amplify and celebrate all forms of employee ownership. Hello, my friends. Thank you for listening. My name is Brett Kiesling, and as it says on my business cards, I'm a passionate advocate for employee ownership. Employee ownership trusts have been a hot and growing topic for the last few years, and it is red hot now. You hear a lot of talk about it, a lot of chatter. We've never really covered it on the podcast. And as I've looked around social media and see everything about employee ownership trusts, a lot of organizations are promoting them now, and there are a number of people involved, but one name keeps coming up time and time again, almost every time, and that's Chris Michael, the preeminent EOT guy in the United States, I would say. And I am so delighted to say, Chris Michael, welcome to the ESOP Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Brett. I really appreciate it. So you and I first connected, it might have been 2018, and we had a couple of conversations and almost had you on the podcast. And I'll be honest with you, and I'm so looking forward to this. At the time, the podcasts were produced by my trustee firm that I was managing at the time. And I remember saying, hey, you can talk about these employee ownership trusts. And then I, as a trustee, I'm going to say blah, 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 blah. And now I've realized as I just promote employee ownership, first of all, I support the trust wholeheartedly because it's cool and you'll explain why. And the second thing is my attitude was in the visor as an ESOP trustee, and these aren't ESOPs. So I was trying to use that prism. So with that, Chris, we like to start with our guests with their what we call the EO Aha moment, that transformative moment that said, hey, my life's going to go in a different direction. I'm that passionate about employee ownership. Do you have a neo aha moment or two? My first job out of undergraduate was I taught algebra uh, as a high school teacher
0: in New York City. And who knows where they get the teachers from? Who knows where they get the principals from? But the particular principal that we had was just, just unhinged. What you would not want in a school building, running up and down the halls, barking, really yelling at the school children. And it just seemed to me at that time, I was like 21 years old, that the teachers could probably do a better job picking our leadership than the DOE. So this is not a private sector context, but it was a a kind of a a instinctual response about what adults can do to conduct their working life in a way that would be best for themselves and also best for their, in this case, consumers would be students, of course. And then the second moment was, and that kind of got me, this is like 99, 2000. The internet had not quite taken off exactly. And so you couldn't just punch that into the computer and find a million answers. It kept me thinking about the potential for that kind of workplace organization. But it wasn't uh, until 10 years later that somebody in a graduate school class had gone back to start a, a PhD at the time, and that somebody mentioned Mondragon, in, in the Basque region of Spain. I, I think for a lot of people that's a big aha moment. And I was like, holy, that was my real aha moment where right? I was like, holy but Jesus. That just snapped me into gear. And and more or less from that point forward or within a few months of learning about that. I was off to the races, had decided to add a law degree to the stack of things that I would do to help become more of an advocate for employee ownership. And then just, yeah, the last, that's been the last 10 years of my life. So
1: Chris, those are both great. And I love your recognizing a school teacher, just broadly, there could be a better way. And it wasn't informed about employee ownership, just there could be a better way. And I will tell you, I'm delighted you are the third or fourth person to reference Madrigan in their aha moment. It is so inspirational. Two of the episodes have already aired. One more is recorded. We haven't dropped yet. But for anybody listening, we're getting signs. If you want to get motivated, Google and look up Madrigan and and figure out what what uh, drives so many people, including you, Chris. So I like that quite a bit. So what I'd like you to do, Chris, is you've shared that you have a PhD, you have a JD, anything else about yourself that you'd like to share and perhaps your firm, and then just take it. And what do you want the listeners to know about employee ownership trusts?
0: Thank you again so much, Brett. I'm now operating the first advisory services and investment banking firm in a country focused on helping business owners transition to an employee ownership trust in the U.S. Adjacent to that, I have the first law firm in the country focused on helping business owners transition to an EOT. So that's EOT Advisors is is the advisory firm, and we work all over the country. We've helped to set up in the contemporary period. We've helped to transition, to our knowledge, every single EOT that in the contemporary period that operates under U.S. law, we've had a hand in, in helping to set up.
1: So I was correct, Chris, when I said that you seem to be everywhere because literally you're touching all of them. Can you give us a sense before you go on of just how many EOTs there are in the United States now? I imagine it's not huge. You're building. That's right.
0: It, it's not that many. It's a dozen. And but that being said, I'm on track to set up another dozen this year alone. So I think it is the. the I think it's the kind of thing that is going to ramp up quickly, and it, a big part of that is. That they are, they can be implemented in really any size company in a way that ESOPs, while you can't, as you very well know, as many of your listeners know, you, you can dip down to 20 employees with a million EBITDA, but you're really getting, it's kind of getting nervous down there. And I think there are probably a lot of business owners that are self selecting out of ever even contacting an ESOP advisor because they're just, it just seems so expensive, so daunting, so complicated. And so I think there's a bigger universe of businesses out there. And so that's the reason I think it's going to pick up. One other thing though, I'd like to share about my background here, which is that I feel like I'm just, I feel like I've just, I'm like the right I'm not just at the right time in the right place in all of this. I'm so lucky to have been become involved in the Rutgers academic network around employee ownership. I was just going along with my business, doing some advocacy around employee ownership, but also doing my academic work and also starting to do practitioner work as an advisor and as an attorney. And I got joined up with this Rutgers academic network back in 2013, 2014, which was Headed, instigated, led by Joseph Blasi and Doug Cruz and others. Marianne Beister, also another important founder, and Michael Keeling also really helping get getting everything going with that. And that was just such an amazing opportunity to you know, get to know not just the academics, but many of the senior practitioners in the ESOP field who really started the whole thing off. And they're still running with the ball in the ESOP field. And in terms of moving over to the EOT as an option, I think it was just, I was like the right age, the right place around this cohort of people with the Rutgers academic network, meeting up twice a year, having breakfast, lunch, and dinner with these people, marveling at what they had accomplished. Also hearing the problems that were raised, the issues that were raised. And we, everybody, we all know in the ESOP community, we all know what those issues are. Not quite having a like my job or my business on the line, being 20 years into my ESOP practice or my ESOP trustee practice. I'm like, I'm what they call a Xennial. So half Gen X, half millennial. So I'm just that, that next generation that's looking at, maybe looking at what what's behind or not behind, what just happened. And what's the what are the ways we could do it a little bit simpler, a little bit easier? Millennials have that reputation of making things a little bit simpler. We just want one big button instead of 25 buttons. So it's that kind of an attitude, I, I think, a perspective that I might have brought to it, and bringing us back to so 2015. It wasn't long thereafter. 2015. It just occurs to me, how come we can't? And talking with. Colleagues and talking with these mentors. Why can't we just? I think it was the very first Rutgers meeting. I said, "Well, why can't?" Yeah, okay, trusts make sense, but then how can how come we can't just do a trust outside of ERISA? Because then that would get rid of all these problems you you guys keep talking about. And and everyone would just said, oh, "I don't know." And then it was October twenty fifteen. And There you know were no EOTs in the U.S. that you know we knew of at the time. I didn't know the word EOT. I I thought I was inventing something out of whole cloth. And in October fifteen I published an article in tax notes, which basically outlines the use of an, a non charitable purpose trust to hold stock for employees in a very simple way. Not a lot of bells and whistles that would be fair over time to all future generations of employees. Published that in tax notes in October, 2015. I think anytime I write something, it's I realize that I only finally got to say what I really wanted to say in the second half of the paper. So then I took the concept that I came out of writing that and re- repackaged it into an article that came out in January 2017 in Probate and Property, which is an American Bar Association publication for trust attorneys. And, and that's, I think, for me, the real my piece that you know, I'm proudest of called The Employee Ownership Trust and ESOP Alternative. And even there, I feel like the second half of the piece is the part that I like the best. I'll probably repackage that again in the future. By 2017, I realized through trolling Twitter and all the rest, I I found out, oh, duh, that what I thought I was inventing from out of whole claw, that that actually has been the main vehicle for employee ownership in the UK for decades. So mm, we're not going to scratch our heads as to what we should call this thing. It's the Employee Ownership Trust and i had already at that point started just to work with some companies to set up eot's at a really a small scale and it was around that time that a watg or got set up which is an international firm i think with a us base but then they set up an eot using uk law And I met Graham Nuttall, OBE, who's the main EOT attorney in the UK, and so started a a little bit of a mentoring relationship there as well, and a partner in crime as far as being an
1: advocate for EOTs. Chris, that is great. And I would like you to transition towards what the EOT is and differentiate it. But first, I want to say something to you and for the people who are listening. I've talked and if you look back on my archives in the last year, I've talked with so many folks that are doing great things in employee ownership and I'm happy to amplify and celebrate what they're doing but I also feel the need to play a little bit of a cheerleader role. You don't only have a dozen EOTs. Oh my goodness, you have a dozen EOTs. You have been working your tail off for years I'm telling folks who are listening, these are going to take traction. I'm not going to say it's better than any other form of employee ownership or worse. What I will say, and you will give us the details, there are scenarios where no other form of employee ownership will work, and this is a perfect fit. And there are other things, depending on their goals, where maybe this isn't a fit. But dude, you are at the start. And just to let you know, and not to tangent, but I'm building an EO ecosystem on Clubhouse, which is a new app. And I've been on there for a month pretty much by myself at first. And then Tom Roback and other folks in EO have joined me. We had a room. You may appreciate this because social media, you've got to be a provocative. I set up a room with a guy named Abraham French this past weekend called why do socialists and capitalists all love employee ownership? And we ended up having 25 people just talk about employee ownership. Five of us in the field, 20 who were just curious and wanted to know the topic. So uh, as I'm building that ecosystem and I'm looking from five people in a room to 25 to really seeing Chris before long, where we can say Chris Michael is talking about EOTs and getting a couple of hundred people there. Dude, you are on a roll and I am so happy. I didn't realize that you have been involved in all of them. And I hope your attitude is there would be no greater measure of your success than for you to be at capacity and have other people be developing EOTs as well.
0: That, that that's exactly that's exactly where where my head's going nowadays I'm ready to work with people around the country but and thinking about how to best serve future clients but absolutely there, there's going to be time very soon maybe this year maybe next year when there's going to be other firms offering this as a service and that's the way it you know should be because I really think that there are will be a demand for this and completely agree as well that this is not about being better than other forms. I always say, and then I always remind people that I always say that I just, I just wrote a 300 page dissertation about how the ESOPs are the best thing ever. It is abundantly clear that the ESOP model has revolutionized, has invented really, in a way, employee ownership as a viable solution for business and for exiting business owners and for conducting business at scale. And so now I think we're just tweaking the model a little bit is the way that that I see it. And here, to my mind, the ESOP transactional model is perfect, right? We have a cohort, a field of, of practitioners who understand employee ownership, serving business owners, giving them everything they need, A to Z, uh, in terms of financing, advisory services, legal, trustee services, administration, in case of an ESOP, valuation, education, national membership associations for, for education, national membership associations, for lobbying. It's amazing. And, and I, I don't think that there's ever been anything like that in, in, in the, the kind of the modern period here. And the EOT is just like a slight down regulation, down adjustment of the ESOP in terms of its complexity.
1: So Chris, let me, if I can, put on my former trustee hat for just a moment and just give a 30 second, this is how an ESOP works, just to tee up. And that will allow you to say, and here's what's different. Is that okay?
0: Yeah, perfect, perfect. So
1: as an ESOP trustee, when the selling shareholder, and I feel like I'm going to run through this, and there are dozens and dozens of podcasts people can check in the archives. Selling shareholder wants to sell their company. Although we call it employee owners, they are not technically owners of the company. A trust is established. The trustee, which is what I did for seven years, makes the decision, acts on behalf of the employee owners. There is a transaction. It is heavily regulated. There is a train of thought that we are too focused on the ugly side and not on the glory in terms of the transactions, but they are heavily regulated. You're going to need all the professionals that you talked about. You're going to need a trustee, whether they're an internal trustee or an external trustee. And year after year, they are regulated. And as an ESOP trustee, I was grateful for the regulation because it helped me protect the employee owners. But you take away a lot of those layers. So maybe start with the transaction. There's no you're establishing a trust, but it's whole different. So take that as a jumping off point. Per- perfect, Brett, I really appreciate that. At the end of the day, what you wind
0: up uh, with in the ESOP is a retirement plan regulated to protect employees as retirement plan holders. And it's like uh, this, you know, kind of like a conveyor belt where people get shares along the conveyor belt. When they get to the end of the conveyor belt, their shares are bought back. And the business has to forecast the needs of its future retirees to be able to repurchase their shares. And it's that commitment, obligation to repurchase shares that creates a lot of the challenges and complexity of an ESOP. EOT is what they say, I like repeating this, Uh, my clients often do too, it seems. EOT is the employees are naked in, naked out. That's what the UK, that's what they say in the UK, naked in, naked out. Just like any law partnership. You're not paying money to come in. You're not getting bought out in any way. The benefits of being a law partner are the annual profit shares. The fact that the the partnership is being run for your benefit on your behalf. With an EOT, you get the same array of governance choices that you get with an ESOP, where you can, just like an ESOP, you can have circular ESOP style governance, or the board selects the trustee selects the board. But beyond that, there's an incredible amount of flexibility, even to the point that you can include... Equity compensation on top of an EOT so that you do realize the you know growth and the value of the business. And then it's not the profit sharing element here is the default for an EOT. But you could include rules in an EOT that do have a gain sharing element to it or are entirely based on gain sharing. Alternatively, you can sprinkle stock options or equity incentives on top of or outside of the EOT. So nothing prohibits this for companies that want to lock in the employee ownership for the long term, protect the employee ownership for the long term, but also include an equity
1: compensation layer. Chris, would I be correct in thinking that it's very difficult in the ESOP world because as participants, everybody's treated the same, but here, and and I don't want to call it a drawback because you can address it in ESOPs, but here... If you have a high performer, if you have a key member of your management team that it would be devastating if they left, these are all things you can address, let's say, easier in the trust than with an ESOP. I
0: think that's one of the best parts about the EOT is just the flexibility here in terms of both rewarding people in the team, but also perhaps preserving elements of family ownership, right? There are a lot of companies that are maybe 49% ESOP, 51% owned by a family trust, or I don't know how many companies there are like that, but you, you have a lot of business owners retaining ownership. With the EOT, you can structure in family elements. You could structure in alternative purposes. So if, you're, if, if employee ownership is your main goal, but you also want some environmental benefits to accrue through the business, you can actually lock that into the DNA of the business. If your interest is you mentioned in terms of the equality of the participants. This is another thing that I think we recognize in the ESOP community that the haves and have-nots problem is a real challenge to reckon with. I've signed up for podcasts, you know, to, to hear webinars myself on this topic. And you often get to, here's the 11 things you can do, none of which really, this is controversial, but I, I have heard it said, here are the 11 things you can do, but none of them ultimately finally solve the issue. So the 12th thing is that you can sell the ESOP. Which doesn't solve the haves and have nots problem. So whereas with the EOT, you can, on the flip side of of the question here, the EOT is very straightforward to set up in such a way that you are um, able to really establish an institution that is going to continue to benefit employees in an equitable way over time. And you're not winding up with what you get in, unfortunately, a lot of ESOP companies where the lion's share of the stock belongs to the people who were there during the buyout period. And and of course, I know there are ways to plan around that. You can make a longer inside loan, outside loan, stuff like that. But this just makes it very simple.
1: And Chris, let me just say, if anybody in ESOP world would want to come in and say, that wasn't said quite right, I just want to point out that you are close enough for discussion purposes. And there are ways to work around, and I I don't mean anything to to you by that, but to those who are listening, particularly the ESOP practitioners, there are Again, I'll just reiterate, there are lots of benefits to ESOPs. You're not knocking them, you're providing something different.
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely not. And and if I framed that, if I wasn't spot on in the framing, if I was speaking too generally, I'm sure I would readily agree to whatever is proposed here in terms of a solution. I I just continue to hear of it as a, a challenge to the point, you know.
1: And Chris, the reason I'm smiling is when you went through the 11 points saying, hey, it doesn't really address, honest to goodness, what I was thinking is, two years ago, if I went down that path on a podcast, the practitioners who were my referral sources would have an attitude. And now <laughs> the reality is I'm not looking for trouble, but we need to have conversations about strengths and weaknesses. And yeah. so I'm just saying, if anybody's listening, you that was my point. You didn't say anything wrong or mischaracterize anything. I've got that little bit of ESOP practitioner antenna, and I'm just saying, hey, hear it out. So let's talk about the establishment of the trust. And it's, I guess, trusts are established all the time. So the mechanics of the trust may be straightforward. It's all of the details. It's what the purposes are. You mentioned if there's environmental concerns, what came to mind is if they want to be a B Corp also, that sort of thing. So can you talk a little bit, is that where the, the heavy lifting comes in for someone like yourself? You've got to talk about the trust, but then the details. Yeah, the
0: work here, of course, is helping. And of course, I'm able to provide the advisory. I can provide the legal. I can help with the valuation. You don't need an independent valuation, which has their, where they have their own attorney. They have their own um, valuation person. So I'm able to provide these services myself. And so it's really doing everything you need to walk the, this retiring, this business owner who wants to sell their business from A to Z, walking them from the, through, planning how the transaction is going to be structured, planning the future design of their company, making sure that we have all the forms they need, working through those forms either directly with them or if they, have, if they want to have their you know, counsel work on the documents alongside, valuation, and then you know, close. The one thing I don't do is I don't do the kind of culture kind of work afterwards. That's, I think, there's a special type of person, I think, that work is is probably best uh, suited for. And I like getting the employee ownership in place in the company.
1: Chris, I've got a question. I know some of the best culture people in employee ownership, and probably you do as well. Is there anything specialized? And by the way, a lot of our culture folks are ESOP specialists. The reality is it's just good business, you know what I mean? And they're in the niche. Is there anything specific about employee ownership trusts or should some of the folks already in the EO space be listening to this podcast and say, hey, we want to focus on employee ownership trusts as well? Is it a different animal or is it a lot of the same stuff? I think the skills totally cross over completely.
0: The main thing with the EOT is that in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, EOTs are and will be simpler than the ESOP. And it should be a lot easier to do the work of motivating the team because to the extent that a company's EOT is primarily or based on a profit sharing mechanism, it's very straightforward to convey to the employee owners that, hey, the benefit comes at the end of this year. And again, this is the stuff that I've picked up through the Rutgers Academic Network is some of the people who are quickest to raise the ESOP flag and have contributed the most to our community are also very readily admit that employee owners don't don't really get the esop don't really understand what it's all about until 10 years later when the first group of employees exits and gets cash and then all of a sudden the paperwork the account statements all of a sudden becomes real
1: and agree with your point i i particularly if the company doesn't work on the culture And I did, as an ESOP trustee, we'd close a transaction and I would go and do a kickoff meeting and announce stuff and would start with, we're going to do our best to simplify this, but you're going to be back in one year and hear it again. So I'd like to think within a couple of years, we'd get them pretty educated and having culture experts is very important, but you are absolutely right. Nothing gets everybody on the same page, than someone seeing somebody retire with a big check. That's where it becomes very real.
0: And then also, you know, all the usual stuff. One of my favorite things is, I don't know if I should say who said this to me, some people might in the audience might know, but uh, somebody very senior in the ESOP field said, you know, um, you know, of course they're a huge advocate of employee ownership and of ESOPs, but they say the day after the ESOP closes, the guy next to you who tells bad jokes still tells bad jokes. The person who sits across from you at lunch who has bad breath, they still have bad breath. So it's not utopia, right? And this is just a slight more dignified work, more pay, better job.
1: Chris, I don't want to take you down the path of culture, but I love the fact that you're identifying all of the issues. And for anybody who's in the culture space, I'd be reaching out to you, Chris, and saying, hey... I'd like to look at the cultural aspect of VOTs, and I assume you'd be happy to work with them. And so to sum up, and first of all, I love the fact that although you're here to talk about trust, you can go long on the culture stuff because it's important. I also love that you recognize it's not what you do, but it's important. And I'll sum up everything in terms of the person with the bad breath or all of the bad interactions The very worst thing that can happen is for a company to become newly employee-owned by ESOP, trust, co-op, whatever, but newly employee-owned, no education, and the day after the selling shareholders, you guys are now owners and nothing's changed. <laughs> right. Without the education, nothing changes. Exactly. So I guess the point before I took you down the culture path, education is a lot more straightforward with the EOTs. And just to raise some other issues here,
0: why I think the EOT, some of the advantages of the EOT here, and in terms of raising the banner for employee ownership and getting as many folks into the fold as we can here, a lot of business owners, in addition and to wanting to design the employee ownership the way they want to design it, not to be beholden to the specific structure that the ESOP requires. And putting aside, of course, regulatory stuff, a lot of business owners don't want to exit their business into a regulatory forest. But there's another way of framing some of those things or saying it in a different way is I think the EOT keeps things private. And business owners who've been king of the castle for 30 years or queen of the castle for 30 years, they might not want to be on a phone call with 35 professional service providers picking through sharing the nude photos of their business to 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 strangers. And so the fact that with an EOT, a business owner can just still keep it in the family, they're only working with one service provider, I think that's very desirable as well. And of course, we also have the other go-to, I think, differentiators on price. EOT is much more affordable. Simplicity, just worth stating again for its, you know, (laughs) simplicity for the sake of simplicity is sometimes, simplicity is very often a a good choice. And I think there's an interesting discussion uh, to be had about the other major differentiator, of course, is that presently the EOT has no tax benefits and the ESOP has all the tax benefits. And I don't know if it's, this is the right place to have this conversation, but I think there, there's an interesting conversation to be had about what those ESOPs tax benefits are really worth to the exiting business owners, what they really mean in the final analysis for the business itself or for the employee owners. Yes, they are amazing undoubtedly. Yes, they facilitate transactions. Absolutely. If I could wave a magic wand and change nothing about the EOT, it would be great to have them. But I think there's a lot to be said there, especially with fewer and fewer business owners electing to use the 1042.
1: Chris, it's funny. By the time this episode airs, we will have aired an episode with a guy named Darren Gleeman. Blew my mind. Uh, His approach, what caught my attention is ESOPs are not boring. And I reached out to him and I'm like, dude, done him a long time. I've never said that. And he actually has the counterpoint to what you're saying. And he says it with exuberance. And as I edited the episode, it's unusual where I'm the sedate one on the podcast and (laughs) he's just brilliant. And his point is to counterbalance yours, that we're not looking, for example, another downside of ESOPs is the perception that you're not going to get as much money as if you sold them privately. And his point is, you're not looking at the tax benefits. And he said, you've got to do the 1042s. And if that, and with great exuberance, that it's better than you think. So it'd be interesting to see that contrasting uh, styles and the point of view, but on the trust. So obviously the startup, and you did say this, but but I'll make it clear. If someone's selling to an ESOP, They first get a feasibility study, which has a valuation advisor. Then they're going to get their counsel involved, ESOP, specialty counsel, and they already have company counsel involved. Then they're going to bring a trustee in the mix. And this is just the way not only it is, but it has to be. The trustee is going to have their independent value advisor and their lawyers. And you're absolutely right. I've done so many due diligence meetings where there are 15 people in the room. And as a trustee, and I wasn't a jerk about it, hopefully, although that might be the, of the holder. What does the trustee Hi. know? Everything. What are we going to ask? Anything that comes to mind. And so to that extent, because if there were, and it comes back to the regulatory stuff and this is connected and part of your point is you don't have this with the trust. I was very mindful and my firm was very mindful that if there was a look back down the road, The DOL could ask me why I asked certain questions, and they could ask me why I didn't ask certain questions. So we ask everything and we fit it in. So for those who are hesitant or don't want to, that is better with the uh, trust. So I talked about the advisors, that makes the transaction significantly more about the trust. We do know in ESOPs, there's an annual valuation update, again, with the trustee, it's independent valuation advisor. With the trust, there needs to be some value. I mean, just can you tell me how that works on an annual basis? So there's no need to get evaluation
0: on an annual basis. Some of my, you know, investment, ESOP, investment banker, mentor friends say you might want a valuation because how else do you keep score? So you might want to do a, a evaluation for that purpose. Of course, that could be done by hiring somebody. It could be done by internally, but there's no external need for it. You could. Theoretically have an inside trustee, I think an outside trustee is probably better, but there's no statutory reason for that. You don't have the litigation risk that you do with the ESOP. And so the co- the annual costs here can be zero. They, they could be 10k a year to have an outside trustee. Now you're looking for states. You're looking for state states that have good trust law here. So you might want to have a, a trustee cited situated in a state that it gives you access to better state trust law. That's one consideration, but it's a minor one. It's very common to shop in different states.
1: The trust can be situated in a different state than the business itself is.
0: Yeah, we keep the corporation wherever it is, the business can be wherever it is. We might use the local trust law, that's fine. If
1: it works. If it works, exactly. Yeah, so tell me about funding, how the money gets to the trust. And in the ESOP space, we do a valuation and shares are allocated. And at some point there are repurchase obligations and how do we get the money in there? And again, in the ESOP space, people can listen to a lot of podcasts about that. And I mean, my podcasts, but tell us how does money get into the trust or how does this work?
0: It's very simple. Basically the transaction is conducted as a stock repurchase. So the money that's being used to buy back the business owner is coming straight from the corporation Uh, It's being taxed at C-corporates. For the time being, it's a pretty good situation in terms of fairly low taxes. But just again, this is what I hats off uh, to the ESOP transactional model. And I think it's really only because of 50 years of, hey, look, this works. You can do seller financing to employee-owned business, to employee ownership. And it works, you don't have to worry about it. I and mean, it's not just because of the tax benefits, right? It's because you, it, it, it's a solid business model. And along those lines, then, it, even though the tax benefits aren't present in the EOT, it's easy now to say, look, this works. It's, people have been doing tens of thousands of ESOP companies. And so the business owners I work with are all very comfortable to do seller financing. Now, that being said, I do have a FINRA license or to, uh, some FINRA licenses. And I am interested and available to help to raise outside financing from private investors to support these transactions. But I think just like a lot of business owners selling to an ESOP, they prefer to keep you know, this is part of the privacy thing. They want a lot of business owners, they want to keep outsiders out. They want to keep banks out. They want to keep private investors out, PE firms out. That's one of the reasons they're doing employee ownership in the first place. But it is something that i um, set up to be able to do.
1: Chris, we're going to start towards wrapping up. And I really appreciate your time. But there's one or two more things that I want to talk about. And the first is uh, perhaps a little bit awkward. I talk about all forms of employee ownership. I come from the ESOP space and that's my natural inclination. If I had an institutional bias in my mind, it, it probably is towards ESOPs, but I see the value of the co-ops, collectives and the employee ownership trust I'm all in. And one of the drawbacks that you referenced of the employee ownership trust of not having the tax benefits, I'm completely convinced that we all need to work together. Every form of employee ownership should have the same tax benefits. And to be honest with you, I would, and I wanna say this the right way, I would encourage, urge, push, beg, and plead the various ESOP organizations to be more mindful of bringing along our other employee ownership cousins In all of that's an introduction by saying, let's talk real for a moment. And you've been very good on this podcast. You have promoted in a positive way, employee ownership trusts. And a couple of times I've said ESOP people might say this, and you are cognizant. You're not looking for trouble, et cetera. So I'm going to say a couple of things and give you a chance to respond. First of all, ESOPs don't work for everybody, period. Co-ops don't work for everybody. And for anybody to say, don't talk about this because it might offend ESOP world is missing the point. And again, I don't want to take to task my ESOP colleagues, but the other thing that I think is a missed opportunity for all of us is when they have a potential ESOP and it turns out not to be a good fit for an ESOP, they're not talking about trusts or co-ops or collectives as other alternatives. It's a, a zero in-game. You're either getting an ESOP or not. The other thing, Chris, and I am on record as, as, and I don't know how I got here, is kind of Switzerland of employee ownership. I support and talk about everybody. And I'm a fan of everybody. But there's a certain amount of disruption to what we all have to do if we are going to Turn this into a movement, which is one of my themes, and I'm going to give you a chance to respond. I'm on a little bit of a roll. I'll give you an example. Lyft and Uber revolutionized society, and was despised by the taxi cab companies as they did it. Meanwhile, and I'm not sure where it will air in in reference to your episode. I've just recently recorded a podcast with Darden Issefi of Ava Co-op, which is a cooperative rideshare app in Montreal and Quebec City. So employee ownership is getting there. You are hesitant to not offend the ESOP world. And what I'm saying is, how do we get to a conversation, Chris, where you can be talking about employee ownership trusts and not making the ESOP people threatened? And more importantly, that if the ESOP's not right, they're calling you.
0: How do we get there? I like a lot what you're saying. I've been doing this for five or six years now. And when I first started out, published that first article in 15 and doing my first few transactions and starting to go to ESOP conferences and doing sessions about EOTs, you know, i um, very reluctant to say anything critical, the slightest about ESOPs and really only pushed the most clear distinguishing factors for an EOT. For example, perpe- I was just I was saying, well, EOTs are perpetual. But I, as I've continued, I've, in, you know, in part that's because I, it's, again, it's so clear to me that ESOPs have really invented the employee ownership space as a legitimate and viable space and, and manner in which to, you know, to conduct business. And again, I, you know, I wrote a book about this. ESOPs are amazing. And and those, it's also brought so much to so many workers, so many employees. At the same time, it's, it's also the case that, as I mentioned before, some of my people that I consider to be my main mentors and friends are people who helped build us the, build the whole space, the ESOP space. And I'm thankful to them. And I Look up to them um, so much. I, I would not want to do anything that would offend them, or in, in any way cast them, you know, in, you know, cast Aesop's in a negative. That being said, in a kind of a thoughtful, delicate way, I think that we can talk about the challenges that the Esop ha- has, that Esop has, and we we do talk about those challenges. We can also in a thoughtful way, talk about the ways in which the EOT can address some of those challenges. We can also talk about the ways in which an EOT doesn't have all of the same benefits that an ESOP has or just different than an ESOP. We can also talk about the ways in which an EOT might simply, turning the page here, EOT might simply accomplish the goals of different set of goals for business owners. And and if you're a business owner that for example, really prefers the profit sharing approach to an equity sharing stock. Sh- you know, then, then this is the way to go. The
1: employees might prefer that,
0: and, and that's right too. The employees, especially younger employees, don't plan on being with business for you know twenty years. Often these days, people stick around at a business for two years or five years. And that's a long, five years is a long time. So it's just, it's a different approach. You know, again, I appreciate that you having me on so much to the ESOP podcast, Brett, just to be able to have this conversation. I try to be sophisticated. I don't know if I achieve that, but in a nuanced way.
1: Um, you were great, Chris. And first of all, it's funny because we try to present ourselves through logo and branding as the EO podcast Unfortunately, somebody in 2014 got the EO podcast name like Environmental Opportunities or something. They've never used it. So if it were up to me and my team, we would be the EO podcast, but we can't be for matrix reasons that I'm not smart enough to understand. Let me now put on, and there are a couple of themes, Chris, and I'm getting back on the high horse a little bit because... People, and and I'm talking to you ESOP practitioners, I was one for seven years, and my firm that I left in 2019 is still nationally recognized. Been there, done that. I wouldn't be looking at, oh my goodness, EOTs are a competition. If I were still an ESOP trustee, I would be reaching out to Chris Michael and saying, and I'd like to be an EOT trustee, can you work with me, if that's a thing. Culture. We have already talked about that. I would be reaching out and saying, How can I add EOTs to my arsenal as a culture coach? It's not about the 12 EOTs that exist now, it's the 150 that will be here in two years. And if you're a culture person, be on the ground floor. And the other thing is at your website as a culture person. Chris, we are all in this together, and I know I'm preaching. If you, as part of your culture business website, list EOTs as one of your service areas, you're putting EOTs on the radar and helping to grow what you're trying to do, Chris. And I'm not done. If I were a lawyer, perhaps an ESOP lawyer, granted, I assume you don't really need to trust lawyers on the transaction, but I would be sending referrals to Chris again, have your crack. If it's an ESOP, make it an ESOP. But if an ESOP isn't the right fit, I'm not saying line somebody up as an ESOP and then bring Chris in to have a competition. But if an ESOP is not a good fit, send them over to Chris for a conversation. Don't even qualify him. Just say, hey, wasn't an ESOP. Do you want to talk to him? And let me make a bet. You in turn, Chris, will be sending over referrals if something looks like an ESOP.
0: There you go. Same thing with valuation advisors there you go. I'm not interested in, in setting up a bunch of ESOPs. You want to do your thing and do it well. So exactly that. If it's looking like it's going to... I a third of my clients, I say, employee ownership isn't what you really want to do. You wanna, you just want to make a few people partners and that's it. A third of the people, I say, an ESOP is what you want to do. And uh, go, to, go to an ESOP firm and and, that, and that's what you want to do. It's not going to be me. And then a third of the people who speak with me, I say, oh no, I think an EOT is the, is the way to go. Right? Exactly what you said, bro.
1: I think that's great, and it, by way of wrapping up, Chris, it sums up a recurring theme, and it's why there's a little bit of a serious inflection in my voice. There are too many folks in employee ownership in various positions, practitioners, organizations, and I love everybody, but their attitude is either grab or protect and not grow. And if we are all, and it's so frustrating for me, boy, I could, 45 minutes of Brett derails. It's so frustrating because we say to the employee owners, grow the pie, share the pie. And then as professionals, we're protecting and grabbing pie. (laughs) Grow employee ownership completely. Chris, you're gonna do very well and there will be a lot more EOTs. And dude, may you have a long life and, and success and happiness. And may you be recognized as a lion of employee ownership as, at, at the end of your career, and that's the path that you're on. But folks, don't listen to what competes or what you don't like. Look at it as just another opportunity, and let's work together and grow it all together.
0: Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for having me, Brett. Really Chris, it.
1: keep doing what you're doing. Please let me know how the podcast can help. You are welcome to come on anytime if there's anything exciting. Quite frankly, Chris, nothing would please me more as your clients unveil EOTs for you to come on for five or 10 minutes and just celebrate the client so that we can all talk and know what's going on. So our platform is open to you. And uh, I wish you all the success in the world because that will mean employee ownership has all the success in the world.
0: Appreciate
1: that so much. Thank you so much. Bro. It has been my great pleasure to be joined by Chris Michael. His firm is EOT Advisors. You can find links to various things in the show transcript. So check out the transcript, check out Chris Michael, and add EOTs to your own arsenal. Folks, I end every podcast for the last year the same way. Everyone in the country and indeed our world is going through an awful lot together these days. That's how we're going to get through it, together. And that's the best spirit of employee ownership. Thank you so much for listening. This is Brett Kiesling. Be well. We'd love to hear from you. To contact us, find us on Facebook at Keesop LLC and on Twitter at ESOP Podcast. To reach Brett with one T, email brett at keysop.com, on LinkedIn at Brett Kiesling, and most actively on Twitter at E-O Brett. Again, that's one T. This podcast has been produced by the Keesop Group. Technical assistance provided by Third Circle Inc. and Bitsy Plus Design. Original music composed by Max Kiesling. Archival podcast material edited and produced by Brian Kiesling. And I'm Bitsy McCann.